Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the program. My special guest tonight is poet and author Ryan Quinn Flanagan. Hello, Ryan. How are you tonight? I'm good. Thanks, Michael. Your latest book is A Tripwire for the Soul. Tell me about your book. What inspired you? Um, like I, I had the title first for this book, which doesn't normally happen, but uh, I had the title sitting around for a while, and I liked it. Um, it was basically the the idea is um, that within life, you know, there's a you're kind of going along as you you think things should go, and then of course nothing goes to plan. So that that's kind of the tripwire that that trips everyone up, and that was the uh, the overarching theme of the book. Oh wow, that you're going along as you just said, and something happens and you fall. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> It's you know no matter no matter how many times you get back up uh, you know you you think you're going along and you you think you're going to plan or whatever a plan is and and it just kind of you know throws a throws a wrench into it a spanner in the work so that that was the idea behind the title and kind of the overarching theme of the book. Oh my God, man, that's that's incredible. I like that, and it's true. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> very true. <laughs> As you think about your your life, what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? It wasn't myself, but I remember seeing uh, the teacher I had. He was uh, it wasn't wasn't poetry or anything. But the way that he would speak or whatever, he was like super eloquent, and and I hadn't really seen that before. And he had like a really big personality as well. And uh, uh, when he said that, when he spoke, people listened. You could, you could tell, and I did too. He had like a presence about him. And, and then uh, the, the words were strange, even too, different vocabulary. So that was that was something that stood out. Is that you know words had power, and, and the way he used them. Wow. Well, please share a set of your poems. Uh, this one's called uh, Deck Chair. made an unfavorable remark, and I was pretty sure it was this smug, comfortable bass with the Adirondacks. Constant look, contempt, body shimming me right down into the front lobe, and that laugh that came next, this chair on the back deck was really asking for it. And composure never really being my thing, I balled up my fists and dug the punch deep into its gut followed quickly by another right to the kisser. A great roar went up from nobody's crowd and crawled into my ear as I decked the bloody fool again and moved in for the knockout. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I have another one one here. It's called uh, Jolly Rancher. And these are all from A Tripwire for the Soul, of course. I guess all his ranch hands were working out. Seasonal hires from the city. 
paid as well as one can hope, surrounded by desolate fields and the ever-present smell of manure, at this dude ranch with a name no one could remember, even some of the old ones that had spent many seasons there. But the rancher made this stew. His wife had taught him how to cook a little before her demise, laid to rest in a family plot out back, with the child she gave birth to, a boy named William, this jolly rancher taking everything in stride, grabbing his guitar each night so he could sit by the grave and play his wife's favorite songs. Then up and at him again, cracking jokes before first light. A couple boiling pots of coffee, every bit as farm strong as all the young men who gathered around with cup in hand. And, uh, one I read is uh, in my sorry, my child, unfortunately <laughs> it's about my uh, my first and only childhood dog and it's called Cerberus had three heads my dog has none <laughs> my childhood dog was a black lab called Rocky he came a pound and brought fleas with him my father banished him to the backyard and I was forbidden to play with him it's a dirty mongrel my father would say. I won't allow the fleas, not in this house. I won't allow it. I was allowed to watch him run and jump and roll and scratch from my bedroom window. One day, Rocky dug up a red shoebox buried in the backyard and carried the chew toy he found inside around with pride. He escaped with the chew toy, and neighbors were appalled as he shook it around wildly in his teeth and tried to play fetch. Some naming to make it all worse. My father recaptured him when he got home from work. But before he could get the chew toy back, Rocky swallowed it whole. Apparently, I had a brother or sister buried in a red shoebox in the backyard, and my childhood dog ate it. My mother cried, and my father became so enraged that he led my childhood dog out into a field one afternoon and shot it in the head. After that, I was only allowed to have goldfish and wondered just how many other brothers and sisters I had lying around. And uh, I'll read another one. This is called uh, Cold Spell. The little boy with rimmed glasses was finally old enough to qualify. It was his first year competing. His mother still dressed him and you could tell sweating profusely under those bright spotlights. The National Spelling Bee took place in a large auditorium. It was televised and commanded large crowds. A podium placed in the middle of the stage for the kids to come forward when it was their turn. Three adult judges calling out the words at random. Then a hushed quiet as the children spelt the word. The, deafening, the defending champion, two ahead in line our little boy stepping to the podium when it was his turn. The microphone lowered to his mouth, his stomach in his throat as he mumbled out those first few letters. Thank you. Wow. You took me on a range of emotions, my friend. Yeah. Especially the one about the dog. I mean, that's, that was powerful. Yeah, that's why I'm a cat person now. It's my one and only child, childhood uh, dog. So, 
obviously <laughs> after that. <laughs> so that's a true story. That yeah, that's a completely true story. Yeah. Oh Unfortunate. wow. Yes. Yeah. You know, I guess again there was so much emotion in what you shared, and as yeah. the as the reader talking about myself or the listener, I took it all in and. It kind of gave me shivers, to be quite honest with you, listening to some of the poems in that set. Do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Um, they they probably they probably can, but uh, I mean, it, it definitely helps if you you feel strong emotions about things. Um, I'm I'm sure that that you could probably have like some some abstract poets or like concrete poets. They probably don't have to. Uh, do it as emotively. They don't express it as emotively. Maybe they do feel it, but uh, you, you could probably do that. But I, I'd imagine uh, once you start getting into to more of the writing, it, it probably helps to to feel the emotions pretty powerfully. Now, speaking of your childhood, yep. Do you come from a literary background at all? Uh, no, part, part not at all. Question, part two of that yeah. question before you go on. It's what did you learn about writing growing up? Um, I I don't come from a literary background at all. Uh, it, it was more of like a sports family, sports oriented. In a sports town, it was so hockey because it's Canada. And uh, but yeah, the the arts weren't really a a big thing at all. Going to school, there was no poetry wasn't taught really. I'm sure who. Uh, introduced us to stuff and and that was great like he he introduced me to Northrop Fry's writings and Wilfred Owen and W.H. Auden mm-hmm. and things like that but outside of, outside of him there was no real uh, artistic leaning there it was really a sports school sports town and and within my family much the same and um what was the the second part of the question <laughs> the second part of the question when you think about writing what did you learn growing up about writing Maybe oh yeah, asked me already. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I I learned that uh, you, as I went along, that you you at the start, like the the way I grew up or where I grew up, it it was kind of like something that was held up, and it's not something that you you were uh, to or saw every day or was were taught that you could actually do. And, uh, you know, as you branch out a bit and you, you, you find other writers, you see things or read things and uh, things that really get you, like the, the one teacher who was introducing me to stuff like uh, Wilfred Owen's poetry, I really loved, and uh, stuff like that. And then you, you realize, well, you know, maybe I can, I can try to do uh, some of this too. Like even when you have no idea what uh, writing really is at that time, you're very young, but still you, mm-hmm. you use the mechanism and you start to write things and you feel good about expressing things. You know, it's a, it's an outlet and it's, it's a good one. All right. Well, as you know, this is a call-in show and we yep. have someone online who'd like to talk to you, hopefully. All right. Okay. Can I bring them on? Yep. yep. All right. Area code six three zero. The first three numbers are four six seven. You're on the air with Ryan Quinn Flanagan. Good evening. I I, I don't know if I want to talk to anybody. Lives in the Northern Woods, okay. up there in Ontario. You know, near a damn lake. It's sort of concerning to me. You know, 
And uh, also, you know, that crazy thing that he said, you asked that question about whether anybody who didn't have a, you know, I mean, could take poetry serious or whatever. Oh, my Lord, the only thing they could ever be would be just a poet of humor, right? Right, Ryan? Yeah. You have any idea who you're talking to, my friend? <laughs> I, I have an idea. I, I think it's Michael. Who? Michael. You gotcha. You got it. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Yeah. Doing good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn crazy people up by Sudbury or some damn place driving a black truck around with cats in it. What the hell is going on with you? That, that, you that, that's, actually, that's very accurate. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sudbury the other day. You know, <laughs> you know and then uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's uh, I sort of like talking to him because I sort of sense we probably came from a similar background, which was no background at all. You know, my dad was a welder. My mother worked in a hospital kitchen, so I certainly didn't have a literary background. Yeah. You know. Yeah, my, my, mine was an account, mine was an accountant, and my mother was a secretary. So. There you go. It's called commoners, everyday yeah. people, blue Every collar. Day. Yes. Maybe maybe slightly above blue collar, but not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really. Yeah. Anyway, it's good to hear uh, hear your voice. Uh, you know, I've uh, always been interested in your poetry, and uh, you got that Gordon Lightfoot look about you're some crazy thing, you know, some hash brown between him and uh, I don't know Leonard Cohen or something. You know, you you look like one of those little buzzards up in the north. <laughs> yeah, it must be a northern thing. It must be in the water. <laughs> yeah. You put your little ducky ass out in the water, and you may get it blown up, baby. You know, no, I just give you a hard time. You know. So you're married up there for kid or something? What's that? Are you? I say you're married up there. Do you have children? Oh, oh kids? No, but we we just uh, we just had our 24th uh, anniversary the other day on the. 24th. Oh wow! Congratulations! Oh wow! Yeah, that's called living in pain. <laughs> you know, no, I'm just kidding. You know, I, you know, people think you know, relationships are just wonderful and idyllic and all those things, but you know, it, it's really a matter of survival sometimes. You know, and I, I, I think sometimes you learn each other's habits well enough that you learn how to, uh, how do I say it? Learn how? What's the gambler say? Right? Learn how to play them and learn how to fold them. Yes. You know, yeah. When it gets too hot in the kitchen, you sort of move out for a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I think I think a lot of people don't realize that you know relationships, especially nowadays, they don't realize that it's work, you know, for right. for everybody and 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 compromise as well. And I, I don't think that people realize that as much nowadays, or that they should, because they they're going to get into a a situation where they're they're going to think it's different than it is. Mm. I, I think you're right, and I, th- I also think you know when you go through your younger emotions and uh, all the different kinds of poetic tricks you try to play on waitresses at the local restaurant, we get by all of that kind of stuff. You sort of get into a little bit more of a stable environment or something, and you learn to tolerate a little bit better than you used to, and you learn how to come back after an argument being a little bit softer than you used to. And you know, it's uh, I don't know. I guess it's a growing process. Well, it, Michael, it also helps, it also helps if, you, if you actually like the person. You we're really we don't fight at all. Really, we we get along great, and we always have. So it's kind of weird that. Well, there, there's really something wrong with your relationship. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, Michael, do you have a question for Ryan Quinn Flanagan, the man uh, of the hour? 
Actually, actually, uh, not not as such right at the moment, but uh, but I was. I, I really was in a hurry day because I'm. I think you know, Michael. I'm going through this condo, and whatever it is, problem I'm going through. And today, I sort of signed off my my condo to my life or whatever. But, but uh, you know, no, actually, I uh, looked up a few of uh, Brian's poems. Uh, you know, and uh, actually, Brian, I, actually, I'm looking at. I don't even know how to pronounce this. Punk N O I R magazine. Oh, punk noir. Uh, yeah, N O I R. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that. Yeah, yeah, punk noir. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think I've been published there too. But there were two or three poems in here. I sort of got a kick out of. And I, I'll just tell you which ones maybe they ring a bell here. I got sort of a kick out of uh, the gas gasoline rainbow. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, you know, with the with the uh, food parking lot and uh, you know, common things like you know, you're walking along on a rainy day and you, I think we've all looked down into these asphalt puddles. You know, and we've seen where gasoline is sort of accumulating, turns itself into a rainbow. You know, and, and so far I was just going on for a regular certain kind of what you'd expect. And then at the very end, you give it a kicker, which sort of puts it all in place, you know. But uh, I was looking at that poem, and also the other one sort of caught my attention because I couldn't understand a great deal about it, but I got a kick out of it. Human birds are noisy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. But uh, no, right, right. Tomorrow, but now I have questions. So I'll just shut up and listen for a while. All right, then, so, sir. Thank did, you so did much. You want to read, did you want to read one of them, Michael? Are you, are you talking? Oh about yeah, that, sure. I can do that. I'd, I'd like to read the rainbow one. Yeah. All right, perfect, perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see here. All right. By the way, I, I don't know about you, but I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm old school here or something because I'm 73 now. You know, but one thing is just uh, it's just sort of bothers me is when they put poetry into double lines. It's sort of like yeah. you'd be reading reading an article and they double space it and it makes it in my mind difficult to read because it becomes very long. You know, I think yeah. poetry this is just my old fashioned so I think it's meant to be, you know, single spaced. So I'm gonna probably be jagged here a bit. But anyway, this is cute. It goes uh, excuse me, it goes gasoline rainbow. I am in the food land parking lot every summer stepping over this pooling of gasoline that forms a rainbow on the pavement i stand there admiring it the smell it gives off my vehicle parked across the lot looking lonely with no one inside i imagine someone jacking it and driving off into thirsty oblivion my gasoline rainbow stretching its gasoline legs, all those wonderful colors. And I really like the ending because, you know, in the beginning, you're sort of given a description of something, that's, you know, that we probably most of us experienced at one time or another. But you make the poem at the end. When you yeah. take it from the description to the extraordinary, when all of a sudden it changes from, a descriptive poem into an imagistic poem when it says, my gasoline rainbow stretching its gasoline lakes, all those wonderful colors. That makes it for me. Yeah, that, nice and, that, and that, was the, that was the idea behind it too, is because, you know, you can do the narrative for a while, but I, I wanted to give it that little thing where the, the you know, the gasoline rainbow kind of has its own little touch outside of the poem, right? Well, you know, and, and that's why I think you and I have something in common because I've always liked your work. You know, I, I think a good poem has to have a kicker at the end. 
In other yeah. words, something uh, in its own way, and I think Michael and I have discussed this a little bit, maybe not, I don't remember. But, you know, you have to have something at the end that gives it just a little twist of different. Yeah. And it takes you someplace. And that little place that takes you is, uh, Michael, you mentioned, uh, you asked a question, something about, do you think a person who does, who writes poetry sort of unemotionally, or, or can they be really a poet, you know? Yeah. And my answer to that would be a little bit different. I'd say no, because the only thing they end up being is probably a humor, humorist. Uh, I see people that write poetry lyrics and poetry rhyme, and they're cute and they're funny and they have their place. But, you know, it takes an imagination to take it this one step further in these, what, one, two, three, wait, one? No, okay, wait a minute. Uh, it leaves it oblivion, but okay, just one, two, three, four, five last lines. Yeah. That's creativity. Wow. And that's emotion. Yep. Well, thank Great you, poem. I like it. I like it, Brian. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Michael. No thank you, my friend. No, no problem. Right, let's not just shut up. I want to hear about Ryan for a while. All right, then, sir. It's good to hear yeah. your voice. Thank and you. You did a great job with that poem. It was really, really yes. nice. Very nice cool. Great. Yes. All right, then let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Question for yes. you. You're, yep. a prolific, you're a prolific writer. Does writing energize or exhaust you at this point? Oh, that's a good question. Um, when, I, uh, when I started, it was definitely all energy. Um, and then as, as you go on, it's, it's still energizing at points. But uh, when, when you're finished now, I, I think the age, the age is starting to catch up to, to me. I, I feel it more. And uh, it's it's really exhausting by the time you're done, and then uh, you, you probably have to recover for a day or two or whatever before you try that again. And uh, I didn't have to do that before, but I I do now. So there's a there's still the energy, but there's there's probably a little more exhaustion too. Well, when you say exhaustion, what exactly do you mean? And what do um, you do with that exhaustion? It, it, it's more mental exhaustion than anything, uh, like. It's not really physically exhausting, but by by the time you're finished, your your brain's pretty fried and and mentally exhausted, emotion, emotionally too probably, because uh, you put a lot into it. And then um, when you wake up the the next day, you gotta kind of cover a bit. I also drink wine when I write too, so physically you have to dehydrate a bit as well. But uh, it's more uh, more mentally and emotionally draining. Uh, I've noticed just in the probably the past five years, uh, whereas 
when I was younger, you could just really, you know, it's the instability of youth, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever. You can just keep going all day, and uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't nothing really seems to affect you. But uh, that that's not the case anymore. <laughs> all right. Do you live your life like it's a poem? Um, at times, not not really though. I'd I'd say like day to day, you live life pretty normally. Like like we were talking about earlier, you know we. Um, just trying to stay vigilant right now and, uh, you know, healthy generally and, and try to uh, wear masks, you know, things that are going on in the world. But uh, <clears throat> that that would be day-to-day stuff and uh, just everyday things. So not really in that sense, you don't live it like a poem, but you do, you do look at things artistically. You always have an artistic eye when you're approaching things or seeing things, um, it's always there to see uh, if you can turn something into art. Uh, it never really leaves you, I don't think. All right. Well, please share another set of poems. Sure. Um, these uh, are not from the book because I was going to uh, intersperse them, but they're, they're newer ones that I liked. And uh, the, the first poem I, I wanted to dedicate to Marianne, if she's listening. She's a friend of ours, as you know. Yes. Both of ours. And... Uh, she liked this poem, so I wanted to read this for her. And it's called uh, Watch the Bird, the Story, Which Way He Goes. The moment is one of discovery, the text of dusting, glyph, lull, deciphering. The bodies are never enough, still natron fragrant and Osiris wreck. Watch the story, which way he goes. The beak, a guiding compass, while the workers toil outside. Pulling shards of trembled, from trembled sh- sieve, sharing brass ladles of water under a guiding sweat-squint sun, working on the burial sites of others while they wait on their own. The modern city in the near distance, a constant encroachment of horns of concrete, stylish vainglory amusements. The difference between past and present, one of timing, of ability. New fingers run over old walls, this painted ramshackle of long-planned silences. And um, this the second poem here was uh, one that I had sent you earlier, I believe. It's called Certificate? Yes. Yeah. She showed me her certificate, was most proud. I'm not sure what it said she could do that she could not before, but she planned to have it framed and mounted from the wall. Asked me if I knew a good framer, so I guess the certificate was not for that. I told her I knew a mechanic who overcharged and could never seem to get the grease off his fingers. She kept taking her certificate out to look at it, like it was the most beautiful thing she had ever seen, running her fingers over her name so carefully as if learning it all over again for the first time. And uh, uh, another one I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, Catfish, uh, another buddy of ours, of course, and uh, he he really enjoyed this poem, so I wanted to uh, read this for him, and it's called Private Detective. A private detective came by, but he didn't know what he was doing. He asked for all the wrong people at all the wrong times, and I noticed a spelling error on the card he handed me. He couldn't find his own car keys. 
feeling himself up as though he were both lovers in a love scene no one would ever want to see. Pulling away from the curb, he forgot to check his mirrors and almost ran over some kid on a bike. I didn't like his chances of finding anyone. Sometimes the missing just stay that way. And someone was paying this blockhead. It had taken almost five minutes to, just to find his keys. <laughs> so that's for catfish. All right for catfish. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> I have another one here. Um, it's called uh, Chase the Squirrel, the Acorn. The last time I held my father's hand, I was seven years old. Standing over the grave of my grandfather, who was now reduced to continuous headstone. He came to me once in my dreams. I knew it was him, even though it could have been anyone leading me up those winding stairs, knowing I could never keep up. I don't remember my mother, like someone robbing a bank and forgetting about the money. That only child way my younger siblings were counted among my collectibles. Chase the squirrel, the acorn that sublime idiot laugh of the clunky dander child. How my father replaced the graveside flowers and told me not to forget. But the mind is a fickle pickle. This long, comfortable shag between my toes. Sprinklers for arms so we can all be fireflies on special occasions. Thank you. I need time to process. <laughs> It jumped around again. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible work. That, thank you. Know, you. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once yes. it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it? Um, I'm definitely in the, the former. I, I believe that uh, poems written in a a uh, certain space and time, certain headspace, and that um, beyond spelling and grammar, I don't I don't correct much of anything. I just write it as is. And if I was to go back, say seven months later, then I would probably be a different person. And that's kind of how I, I view it. It's just it's really grounded in a space and time in your headspace at that moment, and that that's how I approach it. All right, all right. You know, there's an image of poets being overcome with inspiration and having to write everything out of nowhere and at once. Does this ever happen to you? Uh, it does happen. I, I had it happen more when I was younger. Uh, I, I think I'm more, a little more disciplined now uh, in, in the basic approach, but then um, I, I let it go and I'm very free-flowing from that point. But when I was younger, it was definitely more of like a, a feverish pace, right? You would just get into a uh, like kind of like what Kerouac would do, right? Where he'd he'd get his roll ready and you know he'd get his coffee and his amphetamines and write for 36 straight hours, you know? Oh. Uh, yeah, that that type of thing. But yeah, I most certainly don't do it that length or anything like that anymore. But uh, yeah, it was young when I was younger, it was more of that feverish approach, and now. Um, you you still write very openly and and kind of uh, creatively like that within the process, but the process is there now. Like I, you're more disciplined within the basic process than when you were younger. That that's how I approach it. All right, you know it's funny. I'm thinking that writing can be difficult sometimes. Yeah. Um, 
writer's block potentially happens, and other things as well. What is the most difficult part of your artistic process? What's the most difficult part? Uh, probably for me, it, it would be the uh, the editing because I I just I I hate editing. I, I don't okay. know why. It was um, maybe when I went to college, uh, we we had to. I was I went for. Uh, uh, TV and radio, and you had to sit in, an, in this editing booth, and it was like a, a dark eight by eight, and it, you had to sit with three people and, and edit things like really minutely for like twelve hours straight. So I, I, I've always taken that approach with editing too. Like even with writing it, I just I don't like editing. Uh, so it's probably the toughest. Uh, I enjoy building the books. I enjoy writing them. Um, Pretty much those things, but editing, I just, uh, I, know, I can't stand it. <laughs> well, I knew I liked you. <laughs> you, did, you. You didn't know this, but I majored in radio, television, and motion pictures as well. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those, those editing booths just drive me nuts. <laughs> yeah. I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just They just drove me nuts. I couldn't stand them. I just had to get out of there. You know, as you think about a tripwire for the soul, tell yep. us about the process for coming up with the cover, which is quite intriguing. Yeah, um, yeah. I had the I had the title for a while, and then uh, then uh, wrote the book around that, which is not normally what happens. Normally, I write the book first, and then the title kind of comes out of that. But uh, then when it when it comes time to do the build the covers or whatever uh, for a lot of the covers, including this book. Uh, my wife does the, the cover work and she's fantastic at it. And uh, she, she built this cover and, uh, and many others, but uh, yeah, she does that. And uh, she seems to enjoy it because she has an artistic eye. She's uh, really good with photography as well. So uh, she does a lot of that stuff, the photography part and then building. She just has a really good eye for, uh, for the way covers should be. And, mm -hmm. uh, it just really comes together. It's great, actually, because, you know, it's something you can do together. And, uh, you know, she, she just has a really good eye for it, which I don't at all. So that's fantastic. <laughs> and and uh, the results are really good. So, yeah, but, yeah she, she's great. Yeah. It's an incredible cover. It's quite, quite striking, quite striking. Please okay. share another set of poems. Sure. And these are from the book, of course. Um this one's called Crank Call Number 231. Hi, this is William Golding of Kramer's English Breakfast Teas, and I'm calling to invite to inquire if you would be interested in receiving a free sample of our product in the mail. It's 3.30 in the morning, the voice on the other end stammered. That is true enough. We can have your free sample delivered to your door by the time you get up. I'm already up, said the voice on the other end. You just woke me. That is true enough. But just imagine how good a hot cup of tea will be when you can't sleep. I can't sleep because you called here at four in the bloody morning, shot back the voice on the other end with perceptible indignance. I'm sorry, sir, but I regret to inform you that it is not four in the bloody morning yet. I can call back in 26 minutes if you'd like. Dial tone. I made myself a tea, let it steep, and 26 minutes later, I called back. The voice on the other end was not pleased. 
And uh, this one's called Mall, not not as in a shopping mall, but as in uh, back in the day, a, a mall hanging off the arm of a gangster. Oh, a mall. M-O-L-L. Yeah, yeah, M-O-L-L. <laughs> it is not unusual to see you on the arm of some trigger man from back east. You so put together and him brought in to break things apart. Those scars on his face from a rollicking youth before your time. And your scars hidden so well under a fresh paint job and that smart getup. A posh cigarette case for our nicotine queen. If you have objections, you certainly don't show them. Still sipping your drinks and young enough to not be replaced. Hanging off that arm, your cherry red laughter sting all the drink glasses. <laughs> and uh, this one's called No Dark Rooms, which I guess <laughs> kind of fits into what we were talking about earlier with the editing booth. Uh, live for no reason over eggs and bacon, offering up everyone and their friend. Chairs with long brown backs, slavery with cushions. And sun comes through and soul comes through, and there are no dark rooms left anywhere in this world of fresh squeezed oranges. And this one's called uh, Charitable Disorganizations. So what if I saw a ravenous pterodactyl's head in the stymied black shower rug this morning? A man should be able to return to as close to the source as he can, not some collective park lot memory. This is, this is, and that is my wheat to harvest alone. Run sleepy hands through a tired brush cut. My scattered thought are organizations. Thick boober band calling. A moldy chessboard donated to the Salvation Army one and three nights thing. Snap chain link things walking by. Workday sleeves. Sadness is the weather brought in. The skull, the sky falling in on itself. The whole new day raining. And uh, this one's called Crushed Glass and Channel. The uneven shoulder blades of the window are captured moisture. It is strange how you can't stop thinking about the inside while on the outside. The other takes a lot less imagination, something akin to conjugal visits and dog-eared doozies from the prison library. That slow-wheeling cart with many kites tucked inside the books so everyone knows who to kill and how much and (laughs) how which reminds me Crushed glass in chow hall will get you banned from the kitchen, but not before what's done is done. And since those charged with investigating are really just investigating themselves, there will be a single fall guy who almost certainly had nothing to do with anything. Maybe he refused overtures, so now you are just killing two birds with one stone, which is always best when you can. Thank you. What did you learn when writing the book, what did you learn new about yourself? Um, probably uh, with this book, it was uh, a lot more injury. I was I, I hadn't jumped around so much with uh, with certain images and like the data being involved is kind of simplified. 
with the images of the poems. Like before, the title would kind of be more complicated or, or different, and then the uh, the poems might be more narrative. And I think in this book, there's a there's a lot more uh, images almost in a way, and it's it's certainly image heavy. And uh, I I wanted to do that, and I, I wasn't sure if I could, but I think I found I found out that I could do that with this book. Mm-hmm. And this question is just a slightly different. What surprised you most? Um, I, I guess that the the range in the images, like I, I thought that if if you were uh, going for certain images, they you might have some repetition or things like that. But it was that you could really t- go right down to taking simple everyday objects like a washing machine or uh, toilet brush or anything, and you you could really just make an image uh, like like Michael was doing earlier with the the gasoline poem. You can just take a a real simple uh, thing, an everyday thing, and and really turn it in kind of it to its own poem. And uh, I tried to do that a lot with this book, and and was able to. And that was what was most surprising. All right, well let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> I'm here with my friend Ryan Quinn Flanagan. Ryan, are you there? I am. Yes, I am. All right, great, 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 great. Because there was some static, so I didn't know. All right, where where does this book fit into your career as a writer? Um, like like I was saying before, it's probably a I'd say a bit of a shift book with uh, the image writing. I don't know if I'll continue doing that as much. I, I probably will a bit just because I, I think it worked well. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, pro- it's probably a shift book where um, you're shifting away from more narrative heavy, which there is still that in there, but um, uh, to, to some kind of uh, image heavy poetry uh, a bit too. And, and it, it made the switch and some of the works that have come after that uh, as well have kind of been that way. So I, I, I think it was kind of a little change that way. All right, all right. What do you hope that readers get from encountering your work? Uh, one, I hope they enjoy it because uh, any, anything that people do, you know, you hope they get enjoyment out of it. Uh, another, another one, obviously, is just uh, maybe new, a new perspective or a new way of, of looking at things, not, not a way, because <laughs> that's kind of tyrannical, but, uh, you know, just uh, – just fresh perspectives, fresh ways to look at things, uh, certainly everyday images, and, uh, you know, that the world isn't as ordered and uh, perfect as it's supposed to be, and uh, that there are other ways to look at it. You know, you just made that statement that the world isn't as ordered or perfect as it should be. 
that's a very heavy statement. I know it's yeah. true. I know it's true. <laughs> yeah. But being a poet, how do you process that? Um, it's, it's kind of funny. It's like uh, you, you kind of have to keep a distance to to get a closeness. It's kind of a strange thing. Like you have to, um, like where Joyce had to leave Ireland to to write accurately about Ireland. You know, mm-hmm. if he was in the thick of it, he couldn't really do it. So you kind of kind of have to like get in there, get in the trenches, and then kind of pull out, have a distance and a perspective. And then I I, th- I think that distance and perspective it it offers that fresh look that you may not see. Uh, if you're you're stuck in the trenches every day. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got time for one more set of poems. Please share. Sure. Okay. Uh, this one's called Brian Jones Died in Winnie the Pooh's Swimming Pool. A.A. A. Milne was the home's previous owner, best known as the creator of Winnie the Pooh. And then Brian moved in soon after his split from the stones started drinking heavily and fighting with the builders he had hired so that Brian Jones died in Winnie the Pooh's swimming pool after the job foreman held him underwater just long enough that there was no longer any argument over shoddy construction or muddled to meat or teeth or piglet or anyone. <laughs> and that's actually true that, that Winnie the Pooh's, uh, <laughs> the writer of Winnie the Pooh was the previous owner of Brian Jones' house. So. Oh, really? Yeah. So he, he technically did die in his swimming pool. Yes, he did. I was just reading about him the the other day. Yep. <laughs> uh, this one's called Ivory Towers, and it's about uh, poachers poaching elephants, you know, which are amazing creatures, but mm-hmm. it's called Ivory Towers. Such marvelous beasts they were. It is said they would mourn their dead, those ivory towers lumbering and grass-fed. The young ones following mother's trunks in the soaring concordant air. The male leading the way, that awkward labored beauty. No wonder the poachers took the face and left the rest. Tusk, tusk. And uh, this one's weird because I don't normally write any rhyming poems or anything like that. But uh, I, I did for this one and I kind of liked it. So it's called Who But One. Who but one can fill a bed? Who but one to knock them dead? Who but one by recompense? Who but one makes any sense? Who but one nestles egg? Who but one to man the keg? All for naught what I ask for, of you. Who but one to enjoy the view? This last one tonight is uh, called Do You Want to Know About the Japanese Yakuza? I am sitting in the mall food court enjoying the second half of a submarine sandwich. This table of young guys is having a belching competition and throwing food at other patrons. Families quickly get up and lead their children away. This only spurs the antics on. I feel a piece of food hit my back. I say nothing and keep eating. The lettuce on my sandwich is wilty, like the elderly and neglected sun chairs. When the table of young guys gets up to leave, they linger. One leans over my table and keeps breathing heavily as though he is winded. Do you mind, I glare at the kid? His bigger friend comes over in a muscle shirt that shows off his hairless nipples. Those are cute. Do they come in extra large? 
The heavy breather laughs even though he knows he is not supposed to. They're a problem, old man, the muscle shirt stands over me. If you stare at me any harder with those puppy dog eyes, I say, people will think that we are together. Puppy dog eyes does not know what to say. You going to let them talk to you like that, Trev? I hear a voice from behind me. I turn to find four more of them. Listen to your idiot friend, I say. He seems like a real keeper. Maybe I should just knock your ass out. What do you think about that, old man? I think you should take turns instead of all trying to lose your virginity at once. That's so. Space things out, I say. Don't be in such a hurry to fluff each other's pom-poms. Puppy dog eye seems visibly upset. His face is red like a stoplight. Maybe we should go outside, old man. You should all go outside. Fresh air is good for the lungs. This guy's crazy, I hear the voice from behind. I wipe my mouth with my napkin and take out my big hunting knife, that beautiful slicing noise it makes as I slowly remove it from its black leather sheath. Do you want to know about the Japanese Yakuza, I ask? Everyone grows real quiet and steps back. Put your hand down on the table, Slim, I say to the skinny kid who was breathing heavily. Stretch your fingers out as far as they go. One of the ones from behind me wraps puppy dog eyes on the chest and they walk off, not wanting to know about the Japanese Yakuza. I finish my drink and empty the trash into the garbage. Then I head up the escalator to make a dentist appointment. The receptionist has one of those headsets, so I can never tell if she is talking to me. There are three people in the waiting room. They all have cavities. I can tell even without looking. A giant poster of gingivitis on the far wall keeps tonguing itself. Warnings, gum disease everywhere to keep the fear lobby happy. Someone has to be afraid. It may as well be you. Thank you. Now, that last piece was much longer. Tell me about that process. Tell me about that. Um, Yeah, I I don't do many longer pieces, so that was different. But uh, it was uh, was fun to write. Usually usually the conversational pieces can go a little longer. I I find uh, the narrative ones a bit too. um, But yeah, that was a conversational piece. And, uh, you know, you structure it and it's fun to to write it out. And uh, that's what happened in that case. You know, when you think about the readers, is there any advice that you would give to them? Uh, to the readers? To the readers, yes. De- def- yeah. Um, I- I'd say just basically read a bunch of different things. Don't, uh, you know, people tend to find favorite authors, and that that's good. But I'd say, you know, reach out, find a lot of different styles and things, and uh, you'll you'll probably come across – things eventually that will surprise you in many different forms and uh, not just in writing, but in the, in your thinking in daily life, it will, it will kind of open things up. And that's what happened to me when I was younger. So I, I would give that advice. What about your readers specifically about your work? Um, what would you share with them? Um, I, I would say to expect the unexpected because I don't know what to expect a lot of times. So okay. I, I, I tend to go, you know, some days I'll go up and I'll have a basic plan with some basic titles or ideas, but a lot of times I'll just go up completely with no ideas and just uh, and write what comes. So uh, 
it, it's really experimental in that way. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess the results can be good or bad that way, but it's not, uh, it, it's certainly not formulaic. We'll put it that way. You, you just, you just go and you, you sit and you, uh, do what comes naturally, hopefully. And, uh, and it comes out and, uh, you hope it's something original. You try to say it originally and, uh, just come at things from strange ways, strange angles, strange words. And, uh, you, you, you hope it helps you differently and that maybe it helps the reader look at things a little differently as well. Where can readers find your work, my friend? Uh, they can find it on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, there, there's individual publishers for, for some of the individual uh, books as well. Um, and if you have a question like you, you prefer not to get it on Amazon or whatever, um, you can probably just uh, send me a message on Facebook, and that's probably the easiest way, and I can connect you with individual publishers if, if you prefer that. And, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Now, here's a fun question. This is the last one. Well, I guess two questions, but this is one of the two. We've talked in the past about your favorite writers, poets, and others. Yep. What favorite poet do you wish would be your mentor? <laughs> yeah, mentor. Your mentor. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess... Uh, if, if you were to say in in actual writing, maybe uh, Richard Brodigan or E. e. Cummings, I, I would say maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like a, a lot of the writers I like, they probably wouldn't be very good mentors. Certainly not in life, like uh, Bukowski or uh, like Philip Larkin. You know, yeah, yes. he's not the happy, cheery fellow. But uh, Frank O'Hara would be another. I like Frank O'Hara a lot, and. Uh, and his love of fine art. I also love uh, fine art and writing about it and that. So yeah, maybe, maybe Frank O'Hara as well. Uh, uh, Virginia Woolf perhaps. Okay. Tell me about Or, uh, or uh, Emily, Emily Dickinson. I meant, yeah, sorry, Emily Dickinson. What about Emily Dickinson stands out that would have made her potentially a good mentor? <laughs> um, just her individualism, like the, the way that she uh, basically turned, turned her back on most of what he was supposed to do or whatever um, in terms of writing and in her life and, and just forward like that. Uh, you know, I got a world of respect for that. And, and there was certainly a lot of pressure on her, I'm sure, to, to do differently. So, uh, and she seems pretty wise in her writing, so she'd be another one that I would look at. All right. Thank you for that. My friend, What's next in the works for you? Where do you go from here? Um, just more writing, repeat, repeat, and just uh, just continuing writing. That's all. It's it's uh, it never really ends, as you know. It's just uh, yeah. we we just continue creating and continue. We keep on keeping on, as they say, right? And just keep mm. write, writing, creating, doing what we do, and uh, the the world doesn't stop, even though. Uh, a lot of people like to think it does or that it's going to or whatever, but it really doesn't. And you just, you just go on with your life and uh, you try to do the best you can. And, uh, and that's, that's what I'll continue doing. And I'd imagine you will and most other people do. So, yes. Well, I need to share with you that I am so glad that I know you. 
I'm really, really pleased by that. Uh, you're one of my favorite people, one of my favorite poets. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry tonight when listening to your pieces. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> so if that was your goal, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can be a bit of a roller coaster when you, you mix them in like that. But no, uh, same here, Michael. It's a it's an honor to to call you a friend, a dear friend, really. And oh, uh, you. you know, you, you do so much good for for writers, for poetry in general, writing in general. And uh, you know, you're just one of, one of those good people. Does a lot of good in the world. So it's uh, it's an honor to call you a friend. Too. Well, it's a mutual admiration society, so I think that's great. I want to thank you again for being with me. I'd like to thank our listening audience. I'd like to thank Michael Lee Johnson for calling in and reading a poem, which was great. Uh, to everyone, as I share with you every week, let poetry ring. Be safe out there. Be safe out there. Good night, everyone. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.